so we started two weeks ago. We started by just sort of talking about some of the overall impressions that folks have of James, and we read the entire book together so that we could hear it um, uh, just as a, as a whole, as a whole piece for us. And then last week we began to jump into the content of James, but really we just looked at the first verse, um, James 1, 1. And, and so last week we looked at this verse, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So let's just do a little bit of review before we get started this morning in new content. What do we talk about in terms of um, this, first, um, this first line? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are the three primary candidates for, um, or even just the two primary candidates really, for the authorship of the book of James? Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Yeah, the brother of Jesus and the apostle. The apostle James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, or perhaps James, the half-brother of Jesus, who is mentioned, of course, um, not really prominently in the Gospels, but shows up in Acts um, and Galatians and was obviously a leader in the early church after Jesus' death and resurrection. Then we looked at this phrase as well, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The 12 tribes in the dispersion. Here James is identifying the audience of his letter. And what did we talk about last week in terms of what he might mean by this phrase, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Let's take those terms in, in, in peace. What, what, he, what might he mean by the 12 tribes? Twelve tribes of Israel. Jewish Christians, yeah. Um, it's likely here that James is writing, certainly he's picking up on that Old Testament language of the, the 12 tribes of Israel, but it's likely because it's clear that he's writing to converts, to Christians, um, who are probably primarily Jewish, uh, but may include some Gentiles, um, that, that, that he's identifying them as the new Israel, right? The 12 tribes, this is the new Israel, um, the ones that, that Israel that is being formed um, through the true Israelite. Um, Jesus of Nazareth and the 12 um, apostles that he's called to himself to establish the 12 new tribes of the people of God. Um, and then he has this phrase, in the dispersion, in the dispersion. Where do we see that word showing up elsewhere in the New Testament? And how might that show a link between James's uh, words here and the audience and context of his letter? After the death of Stephen, right, in Acts 8, um, that same Greek word um, that is translated scattered in Acts 8 and, one four, and Acts 8, 1 and 8, 4 um, is, is used here. Uh, we might say that, that James writes to the 12 tribes um, in the scattering. And that word is translated scattering in Acts 8. It talks about how after the death of Stephen, the Christians were scattered out of Jerusalem because of the persecution that arose that day. And Acts 8.4 tells us, as they were scattered, they did what? What did they do as they were scattered out from Jerusalem? They preached the, the word. They went and told people about Jesus. Remember Jesus in the early part of Acts, Acts 1 told them that he was sending them to Judea and to um, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. At that point, they were basically only in Jerusalem. They had stayed put. And that, that persecution had the effect of pushing um, these new believers filled with the Holy Spirit 
um, out, uh, and they were preaching the gospel as they went. And we find in Acts 11, actually, that they went even farther um, than Judea and Samaria. They began to go out into um, the Mediterranean world, and they were establishing Christian communities as they went, um, as they preached the gospel. And so it may be, and I think it's actually likely, um, for that reason, and also we talked about last week the fact that there's no discussion in James of the the Jew-Gentile issue um, of the the conflicts that would arise in the church about the the status um, of Gentile Christians um, vis-a-vis Jewish Christians and how they might relate to one another and and view one another. Um, And so it it is, in my view, likely that this letter is written early um, to the Christians who were scattered, largely Jewish Christians who were scattered out of Jerusalem who are now experiencing um, intense persecution at times, depending on the city and locality in which they live, and are certainly asking questions about, well, what is God doing? What is God doing? We, we have put our trust in Jesus, that he was the Messiah, that he died and rose again, that he sent the Spirit, and now we're losing, right? This isn't ushering in some kind of golden age of, of triumphant you know, establishment of Jesus' kingdom. This is leading into a period of time where people are dying and suffering and losing their house and losing their possessions and being driven out like refugees um, to live wherever they can. What is going on? What is God doing in, uh, in this period of time in my life? And I think it's likely that James is writing um, to um, people like that. It's interesting, I'll, I'll just say this, this idea of James being, um, I mentioned last week that many Conservative commentators, even conservative commentators, will will not see this book as potentially being written even very early. You know, they say they'll say things like, "Well, well, James the the apostle died around 42 at the hands of Herod." We see that in Acts 12, and thus he is not a candidate um, to have written this letter. And and I just I don't understand that argument personally. Um, the death and resurrection of Jesus happened um, around 30 A.D., um, depending on how you date different things. Um, why could James not have been written in a decade after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the day of Pentecost, that decade when there were certainly um, Christians who were suffering persecution? I think there's a bit of a modern bias, honestly, as we look back and evaluate the timing of some of these things, that it, that it must have taken these men some time, and, and they must not have you know, had, had the opportunity or something to sit down and write um, a letter, or a gospel for that matter. Um, but, I mean, we read James aloud two weeks ago. It took about 15 minutes, right? I mean, I write a sermon that's longer than James every week, <laughs> you know? Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem um, impossible to me um, that a, a, an early pastor of the church, whether it was the apostle or the brother of Jesus who had spiritual authority and oversight and care um, for the Christian's that had been scattered out and, and were experiencing persecution, it certainly seems to me that, that to send them a letter um, would have been a, a deeply uh, fitting thing for him to have done, um, even very soon after um, that, that, those events that are recorded for us in Acts um, 8 and 9. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, I mean, yeah, no conservative interpreter of the scriptures would debate whether or not James was written before the destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah, yes, yeah, I think. And the, and the reason for that is just the, the, the lack of any kind of discussion of that event 
I mean, there are other reasons for that. But that's one of the primary reasons. You know, if, if something as cataclysmic as and important as the destruction of the temple had taken place in history before this letter was written, surely um, the writer would have mentioned that, would have said something about even the way in which Jesus' prophecies had been fulfilled in that event. Uh, because remember, Jesus has made two main prophecies in his life, that he would die and rise again, and that the temple would be torn down and destroyed. Um, those, are, those were the two predictions on which he staked his identity as a prophet of God. Um, and so it was so, for the early church, the, the dis- eventual destruction of Jerusalem and the temple would have been and, and a very, very important confirmation of his identity as the Messiah of Israel. And even, we could go so far to say, as if it had not happened within 40 years, um, within a generation of him predicting it, as he said, um, they would have, it would have been a massive crisis of faith um, for those Jewish Christians if they had not seen the confirmation of that event. That's good. All right, any, any other questions before we jump more into the content here of the book? Yes, John. Yes, you're right. And so that is a possibility. It's a possibility that that, that word dispersion is also used to refer to the scattering of the Jews outside of Jerusalem and Judea. That of course happened partly through the exile. That I mean, this is you know hundreds of years, almost a thousand years before at this point, um, but also happened just over the course of time that the Jews were scattered outside of um, of their homeland. So yeah, that's I mean that's that's that is a possibility. Yes. Right, not Jesus. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In, in my view, I don't think it's a likely that that's what James means here, but it certainly is a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. It would seem odd, given the history of Scripture in 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 Israel's history, that something as big as the entire covenant changing over for there not to be some sort of Scripture very soon. Yes. Yeah. That's a great. That's a great How point. How are you going to wait? You know, nineteen years before right. you're going to have your first. Yes, just let me respond to that. So yes, I think Todd, I mean, I'm very sympathetic to what Todd is saying here. Basically, you have, a, you have a, a, a religious culture and tradition that has always been centered around the written scripture. Um, that would have been uh, completely uh, normative um, for the Jewish people, these Jewish converts. And so if, if they had experienced something like the death and resurrection of the Messiah of Israel, um, if they ex- experienced the transformation of the new covenant coming to pass in their midst, wouldn't the f- one of the first things they did would be to, to appoint someone to write it down. So it would not simply be oral tradition, but written on paper. Um, certainly that was the way in which the scriptures were treated and respected, and, and, and there was you know, the entire Old Testament. It's not just old oral tradition. Um, it was written tradition. I actually think that it's likely that Acts 6 is about um, when the disciples say, or the apostles say, that they um, need to have space and time to devote themselves to 
um, to prayer and to the ministry of the word, that one of the things that they mean is the writing of the scriptures. And I personally think, I know this isn't a popular view in academic circles, but I personally think it's most likely that they would have appointed Matthew um, to write his gospel at that time, that his gospel was first and that it was early. Um, certainly, we, I think all scholars pretty much agree that Matthew is very intentionally written as an apologetic to the Jewish nation um, for the Messiahship of, of Jesus. Um, and so, in my view, Matthew was an eyewitness. He saw all the things that happened. He was um, a, a tax collector. He was a learned man. He was used to writing things down and keeping records. Um, certainly, he, um, it would make sense, I think, within the flow of New Testament history um, that, that he would have written that first gospel as a, as a means by which to try to convince um, Jews that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, showing how, you know, very, very methodically how he fulfilled, how he was the new Moses, how he was the new Joshua, how he was the new Solomon, how he was the new David, um, how he even in his death and resurrection uh, fulfills all the scriptures. So, yes, I'm very sympathetic to that. And I think it's something, I think it's something, I, you know, there's no point of orthodoxy that's, that's built on this. You know, we can have different opinions about this, the order of the Gospels or how early they were written. Um, but I, I think that's a view that's worth considering. Um, there's no reason to reject it outright, I don't think. And actually a lot of reasons to, to be, view it favorably. Yes? I mean, so you just said it's not very popular in academic circles. What you were just saying. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, if you, I mean, you know, I mean, even in a seminary like I went, like Covenant or, you know, conservative reform seminaries, um, there's just a lot. I mean, anyone who studied, you know, the gospel, the study of the, 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 the gospels over the last hundred years, you know that there's been a lot of debate about source material, um, whether there's some, some lost, um, either, you know, oral tradition or written document called Q that, that was a source for the Gospels, and maybe we can sort of piece together based on um, textual analysis of Mark and Luke and Matthew in what order they were written. And yeah, the synoptic problem, quote unquote, and of course Mark is, because it's the shortest, there's a preference for, well, if it was shorter, it must have been written first. I, I talked about this, you know, when I was going through the Gospels last, last year, um, it, it's not always easier to do things that are shorter. It, it just isn't, right? I told this story about the, I think it was Woodrow Wilson, some early 20th century um, presidential uh, person who talked about, you know, somebody said, how long does it take you to, to write a speech, Mr. Wilson? He said, well, depends how long you want that speech to be. If, if, it, uh, if it needs to be like 10 minutes and, and sum up everything that I want to say about myself and my platform and my vision, then I'm going to need like, you know, a month or so at least to, to put that together. Um, if it can be like, you know, half an hour, um, you know, and doesn't have to be quite as concise and, uh, and clear, then, well, I, you know, maybe a week. Um, and if you don't really care about the time, well, I could just do it right now. Like, like I just start talking, you know. Like, um, so I, I think there's this, I'm, and I'm, I think, it, again, I think there's a lot of modern assumptions that go into the idea, well, if something was shorter, it has to have been pursed. Well, why? Why is that the case? Um, and I'm not convinced that there, you know, certainly, certainly Matthew could, I mean, my, my understanding, at least of the, the Gospels, is the canonical order is likely to have been the chronological order. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. So, all right, let's, let's jump. I think this is fascinating. It's good stuff to think about. But let's, let's also jump into the content of this letter this morning. All right. 
um, verses 2 through 4. Let me just read this. Let's talk about it. Here's how James begins the, the meat of his letter. And remember that when we saw this last year, we were going through the epistles. Often many of the themes and the, the emphases and the, the, the main points of an epistle are contained within its first uh, paragraph or two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If that statement is true, if the major themes of an epistle are often contained within its first paragraph or two, what are some of the main themes that James is introducing here? What, what stands out to you, especially those of you that know some of the content of the book as a whole? Perseverance, yeah. I mean, that's a huge thing that's introduced here, right? That word steadfastness, that's going to come back uh, multiple times. It's going to come back um, even in verse 12, very quickly, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. It sounds like a, a beatitude, we might say, very similar to what Jesus um, would say. And we, we also think about steadfastness comes back um, implicitly in different ways in the book, but explicitly it comes back in chapter 5, um, where James says in verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient, in verse 8. Wait for the Lord. Um, verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke um, in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider, and he says the same beatitude, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. Steadfast. Um, so yeah, I, th I think this is one of the major themes of James, that, that one of the, the, the ways in which we show the integrity, the quality, um, the, the, the vitality um, of our faith is by being steadfast, by not falling away. Um, and Jesus said similar things to this. Remember, Jesus said, persecution is coming, and if you endure to the end, you will be saved. Um, that, that steadfastness, perseverance, was something that was a necessary requirement for those who would follow him, that things would be difficult. If, if, they, if they treated me this way, how will they treat my, my disciples and my followers? If they, you know, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you, um, and you must... Um, wait and be patient. So yes, that's certainly one of the big things. Let me go to Alexis and then Jeremy and maybe you listen. I thought of uh, Job actually. Yeah, um, absolutely. The testing of the faith and steadfastness. Yeah. And then, yes, he lost everything, but then he was blessed. Yeah, and, and, and chapter 5, Job is, is invoked explicitly. Um, he says um, to consider Job as an example um, of what it means to be patient. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, um, James says, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful, even in the midst of suffering. Because that's the big question of Job is, is how can a God who, has, who loves this man, how can, he, how can suffering be consistent with that? If Job is righteous, how can he suffer? And that's the normal question that these Christians would have been asking. If, if, if we're now in Christ, in Jesus, the true Israel, um, the true chosen people of God, um, how can we be suffering? What does that mean? What, 
that doesn't make sense. And, and James is saying, remember Job. Right? Remember how this is not inconsistent with how the Lord acts. It doesn't mean he's not being merciful and gracious. Um, yeah, Alyssa or, Alyssa or Matt. Is it Matt? Okay. Yeah, Matt. Wisdom. Yeah. Yeah, so wisdom begins to show up, right? Um, especially in verse 5, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But yeah, that, that the purpose, what is the purpose of the steadfastness? One of the main purposes is to grow in wisdom. That's actually what it means to be made uh, perfect and complete. Um, we're not talking about moral perfection here. Um, that's not, of course, held out. It's not sinlessness is not the goal. The goal is maturity. The goal is wisdom. Um, and, and that is a huge theme, certainly, of the book of James all throughout. 